You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Richard. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Good. How about yourself? Can't complain. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Richard Hanania, if that's pronounced correctly. <laughs> it's close enough. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll declare victory and move on. Um, and, uh, you are at, uh, at, at, uh, at Defense Priorities now. Is that right? You're a research fellow. Is that? Yeah, I'm a research fellow at Defense Priorities where I do work on international relations, uh, American grand strategy, the U.S. role in the world. <clears throat> I've also recently started a think tank, which I'm the president and founder of called the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Hmm. Uh, so we explore topics in the social sciences, which is sort of, um, unrelated to my IR work, but yeah, mm-hmm. those are my two affiliations right now. And when you say we, is the is the plural yet really appropriate or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have, you know, board members and we have fellows. Okay. So, you know, so it's an I'm actual like 501c3, an actual yeah, nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yes. That takes a little work. Uh, yeah, it's paperwork. It's It's not pleasant. It's not as fun as some of the other things you'll be doing when you're sort of participating in the uh, you know, marketplace of ideas, but it's mm-hmm. it's a necessary evil. You, it's not that hard these days. You go to uh, legal Zoom, and you know you can do it for pretty cheap. So it's not as the burden I think that it once was. Okay, well, good. So now, although your background is mainly in international relations, we're actually going to talk about civil war today. And it turns out that the that the you know the political science literature you're familiar with has bearing on the question of civil war. Uh, People over the last few years have been talking a little bit about civil war in the context of modern America, which is a new thing. Uh, and at the moment, uh, you, you're hearing things relevant to it, like, why don't we secede from the union? <laughs> people are, people are saying things like that. Somebody in Texas said that Rush Limbaugh was talking about secession, but then walked it back, I guess. Um, as we record this, uh, the Electoral College, is seeming to make it uh, pretty much inevitable that, that Joe Biden will be president. Um, and, and that's the, the occasion for, for the latest round of talk about secession, civil war, whatever, is, of course, the controversy over the election results. Um, it's looking as if a fair fraction of the country may wind up not considering the next president legitimate, which is a you know, a, a pretty recent thing in American history. Um, so anyway, uh, you are a civil war skeptic. Uh, you think that you think what research has been done on civil wars around the world, uh, kind of implies that it's unlikely that America could have a civil war. I know this because I had uh, written something in my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter. Uh, it was called Tips for Avoiding a Civil War or something. It was just, just uh, my two cents about ways we might kind of tone down the volume a little domestically. And you citing this uh, and and other things, uh, I mean, you, you kind of took issue with it because uh, I guess the, the, the premise of my piece was that people seem really upset. There are a lot of grievances out there. It turns out you don't think grievance is a very good predictor of, of whether people actually have civil wars, right? So so right. Um, do you want to talk about how political scientists think about uh, civil war and and why you think it's unlikely? 
Yeah. So, I mean, when, so yeah, I came at this issue. I mean, I uh, published on uh, civil war and the sort of uh, the quantitative research and, um, you know, I, I'm familiar with this literature. And so I start. I started, you know, noticing this a lot. I noticed a lot of people talking about civil wars. It wasn't just uh, your piece I was responding to, but it, you know, I was motivated to write something that ended up in the Washington Post because I was just seeing it all over and just smart friends that I knew. And as somebody who's actually looked at the literature, um, it just sounded sort of crazy to me. And I thought I would go and then, you know, sort of explain to people why. Uh, so we have a lot of you know, data over the last, uh, you know, not, you know, the era of big data, basically you start collecting sometimes in the fifties or sixties, you have, uh, you have 170 something countries in the world and you have data on who fights a civil war. And so you start by defining your terms, right? So, um, you know, they say usually in the literature, they use something like a thousand deaths, battle deaths in a year, right? So a civil war has to have some threshold. It can't be one mass shooting or, mm-hmm. you know, yelling at each other on Twitter. So you have to start, you have to start from there. And then you, and then you just do these uh, statistical analyses and you see what predicts it. And overwhelmingly, you know, so there's, there's two sort of frameworks you can, you can, uh, you can take, right. There's a grievance model, which is basically people hate each other when they hate each other enough, they're going to start killing each other. And sort of in the popular telling of how we tell different stories, you know, usually it's usually the grievance model. I mean, it has appeal sort of to the layman. Well, that's a variable that's been getting attention because that's the thing that's been kind of obviously changing, you know, with all the polarization and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And even when we talk about foreign countries, we talk about like Iraq, we talk about, you know, the Sunni and the Shia, they have these grievances. <clears throat> when we talk about the Balkans, um, you know, we sort of, we sort of have this model in our head. <clears throat> And 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 from that perspective, the American trajectory is very worrying, because if you look at uh, political scientists, what are they looking at over the last, you know, 20, 30 years? How much do the parties dislike each other? How negative is one side towards the other? Like even some stuff like, you know, how uh, justified is violence? You see you see bad trends. So if you if you take the grievance model, you know, we might be headed to a very, very bloody place. Um, you mentioned, uh, uh, yeah, not accepting the election as legitimate. I don't know how new it is. I mean, I, I wonder how much of this stuff is just more visible, you know, because if you ask uh, Democrats during Trump uh, presidency, how many of them thought Russia actually changed the election totals? You know, it's it's a pretty high percentage. And then you had the birtherism with the president before that. So, you know, I, I think if there was uh, maybe the Internet in 1960s and 1970s, maybe we would have a sort of different, <clears throat> different, different. Actually, I was around then and I just don't remember this stuff. Yeah. The uh, I mean, I will say uh, I. I, I you know, I mean, one thing you, you are probably going to have that's new this time around is, the, is, is in my lifetime, is the, uh, the, the, the candidate that lost the presidential election refusing to concede explicitly in some way the legitimacy of the successor. That may well happen this time. That has not happened in my lifetime. So that's, that's new. Yeah, um, Trump is Trump is a break, un- unquestionably. Uh, so yeah, so from the grievance model, things things look bad, and there are costs to this. I don't think you know grievance doesn't matter for anything; it matters for some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the other the other way you look at the Civil War is opportunity, right? So basically, you look at the idea that look human beings always have grievances um you know gangs of young men can get together and start killing each other basically at any point when you remove sort of you know the thin reed whatever it is that's holding up civilization and you know the and so the the countries that 
since grievances everywhere, the countries that face civil war are the ones where the government is weak and the government can't stop it. Now, the government may not be able to uh, clamp down on violence because it's just weak. It's just a very poor government in the developing world. A lot of, the, you know, they can't even they can't even get to rural areas. They just have mm-hmm. there's basically ungoverned spaces. Uh, there was an excellent article in The New York Times about uh, Mexico and the violence there. And it's just, you know, a weak government and about this lady who went on this sort of Rambo killing spree, not a killing spree, but arresting spree, arrested all these people who um, who kidnapped and killed her daughter. It's an amazing story because it goes into like she goes to the police, like the police arrest people, they escape. I mean, you really see the state capacity issue. And then the other thing is sometimes you get geography, right? So when you combine with this, so when you have mountains, when you have swamps, you have a poor government that can't get to them. This is the, these are the places in the world where you see civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, the U.S. case is very simple. We have a very strong government. Uh, we're a wealthy country. It's capable. Um, you know, it, you know, you, you could, you know, you shouldn't confuse uh, sort of these showdowns in Portland where, you know, Antifa and the Proud Boys are throwing punches, even if one person gets killed and all. We shouldn't, we shouldn't um, you know, mistake that for something that's going to presage a, an actual civil war. Something mm-hmm. like Iraq, or something like uh, you know, uh, you know, Balkans, or something like that. It's just, it's, it's just, it's just something that I don't think is going to happen. Now, I mean, it's, it's, and you know, I'd go further. I, I was looking actually to see what's the, um, you know, what's the wealthiest country that's ever faced a civil war, and I couldn't, I couldn't determine for sure, but I know, like, whatever, whatever it is, we're way outside that range, right? Mm-hmm. So things can happen that never happened before. You know, that that's possible. It's mm-hmm. just I would always counsel being skeptical of things happening that haven't happened before. And I don't, and if you just look at like, you know, are we at the level of, you know, they have different uh, thresholds like uh, political science. So they'll say a thousand deaths in a year, civil war, you know, low level violence. They'll maybe say, you know, 25 or 50 deaths in a year. Have we even reached that? No, you know, we see, we see one or two, of course, you sound a little bit callous when you talk like this, you know, every death is, you know, a tragedy, but one or two deaths happen. And, you know, we say, well, we're on a trajectory. We're all going to start killing each other. I, you know, I think, I think that's, you know, hyperbolic. Okay. Uh, Let me, this is kind of a a tangential question, but how different is the question of civil war from the question of revolution? I mean, I would think some civil wars start with revolutionary aspirations and some start with secessionist aspirations, um, but, but are they, are they very different questions in a lot of ways? I mean, I'll tell you, the reason it came to mind is you said rich countries don't have civil wars. And I thought this is going back a ways, but when the French revolution happened, surely France was one of the more prosperous countries in the world. Uh, this is granted a long time ago, but, but that it's not relative wealth relative to other countries. It's sort of an absolute. So France in the late uh, 18th century was probably like a sub-Saharan African country as far as, you know, so it's absolute. No, no. Okay. So, okay. So, so, and I mean, for that matter, the literature is probably pretty recent in its focus that we're, uh, how, 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 how recent is the literature? I mean, are we talking mainly about data points from the last hundred years or what? Yeah, it's it's basically you need, you know, to have to know stuff like, you know, to be able to do any kind of analysis, you need basic stuff like GDP and like, you know, population size and stuff like that. So that really comes about, you know, in the decades after World War Two. So you have, uh, you know, 170 countries, 60 or 70 years of this data. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good question. So the 
the you know there there are two kinds of civil war so you you know you there is the kind of sort of insurgency where somebody tries to take control of the government and mm-hmm. there's sort of the secessionist movements where these two sides fight and what's what we can do is just count how many of these kind of conflicts we see over the years and the kind where you sort of have a secessionist movement and you know sort of like the american civil war and their sides on the battlefield that that kind of conflict has really plummeted um, over the last 50, 60 years. And, you know, if I was if I was to guess why that is, I think it's probably related somehow to the reason why we see so few wars between states is that basically there's, you know, if you think of war as uh, an information problem where, where each side, we're both with the sides can't really agree on which side is stronger, um, then the more information you have, the more sort of decisive um, uh, military technology becomes the less of these sort of set piece battles that you have, you know, nobody's going to almost nobody's going to face the U S in a sort of set piece civil war. Like Mexico might've fought the U S in like an actual war, you know, a hundred, 150 years ago, but it's not going to do that today because the U S would just, you know, destroy Mexico. It's sort of, so if you imagine somebody tried to break away from the U S government and you imagine whichever side has the military is going to, is going to win that pretty easily. Um, and and, so, and your point is that they would know that they were going to lose because there's enough yeah, information out there about their relative power. Yeah. I would guess it's hard to prove this, but 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 I, I would guess so. I mean, the you look at you know sort of uh, you know just when you read uh, historical accounts, just how sort of uncertain you know the you know, like World War One when the Tsar is calling up all mm-hmm. his reserves, what kind of war machine he's going to have and how effective he's going to be um, is just sort of you know a mystery to people, and people can people can make all kinds of guesses and uh, about how things are going to unfold. Uh, but you get you get much less of that. You know, the, U, the U.S. in 18, you know, in the Mexican-American War could go down to Mexico and it could go in either direction. If the U.S. is going to fight Mexico today, Mexico knows what happens and the U.S. knows what happens. And I would guess that that has something of a pacifying effect. Mm-hmm. There's um, so, you know, one thing that I noted in the piece I, I had written uh, that I alluded to, um, although I'm not as 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 skeptical. I mean, I'm kind of a worrier, so I'm just not as skeptical about any kind of bad thing happening as you, you might be in some cases in Civil War is a bad thing. So I'm not as skeptical. But I did note in that piece that one thing it seems like you're unlikely to see is uh, is like two vast swaths of the country divided. And that's partly because it isn't really red states versus blue states in any clear-cut way. You know, the average red state is at least 35% blue. The average blue state is at least 35% red. It's much more a population density divide of, of kind of urban versus rural. So right away, you're not talking about, uh, you know, about the, the, the kind of uh, 1860s kind of civil war, right? Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I guess. So when I wrote that piece, I get I was I was coming from the assumption that sort of the the old kind of Amer- first American Civil War thing is, you know, the most unlikely case just because it doesn't happen anymore. So I was thinking of more, which I think is what most people are thinking of, although secession has come into the news recently before. I think most people were generally thinking of sort of these armed gangs uh, right. fighting each other in the streets. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I you know, the. Um, um, you know, the, I mean, the strange thing about the sort of the American divisions is if you look back at the uh, the American Civil War, it was slavery. And for decades and decades, uh, people knew that slavery was a huge issue and it might eventually blow up into a, a civil war. So I was just reading a great book called Heirs to the Founders about uh, the sort of a biography of John, Calhoun, John C. Calhoun, uh, Daniel Webster and Henry Clay. 
And, you know, this is this was their entire career from the time of the founding until, you know, they, they left the scene generally right before the Civil War. Um, and so you have this issue. What, what, was, it, their, what was their entire career? Uh, it was basically trying to deal with the sectional issues and the slavery issue. Okay. So they were the generation between the founding and actual the Civil War. Okay. Uh, and so if you look at the American, you know, if you, American context today, it's interesting because it's sort of, you know, this isn't an idea I haven't developed fully, but I, I'd like to develop. It's sort of about nothing. Um, I was I saw Glenn Beck on uh, Twitter the other day, and a, a decade ago, Glenn Beck was saying, uh, if Obamacare passes, um, America's over and we're going to be the Soviet Union. And, you know, th- there was all this rhetoric. And Obamacare came. And now Glenn Beck is talking about, well, if we let the election results stand, you know, it so it seems like it's it's it has it seems like there's these ever shifting goalposts. And, you know, he's not sitting there saying we're the Soviet Union now unless we repeal Obamacare. Nothing. (laughs) He just forgot about Obamacare. Maybe 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 he'd say that they didn't get the public option passed. That would have been the the Soviet Union. Maybe that was his threshold. But anyway, yeah, it it was good. It was during the debate when the actual bill, I remember, I mean, this was a big yeah. thing. He was saying this, this nonsense. So it's, it's almost, you know, custom, it's almost like perfectly produced to get people angry and not create sort of these lasting issues. Um, it's sort of a, sort of a, has a, this pro wrestling quality. And, and, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know what, what this looks like in the comparative perspective, but it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot and find very odd about sort of the American situation. Well, that's an interesting point. In other words, you're saying it is self-consciously performative, which isn't the same thing as saying that the fans, I mean, you know, the time-honored question is how many of the pro wrestling fans know it's fake, you know? It's like, uh, and I think you could ask that question now, and I I fear that the answer would be a a lot of them don't know. I mean, it's not clear to me how how fake it is. I've, 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 I've... developed this unfortunate habit of listening to the Steve Bannon podcast. Uh, and I mean, I tuned in today, you know, because the Electoral College is actually voting and to, to see if he'd throw in the towel, but not even close. Believe me, he's 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 hanging in there. Um, I'd, I'd recommend Alex Jones. He, he's at least funny, actually. Well, Alex <laughs> Jones, by his own account, is performative. That was his excuse in, in the in the trial over Sandy Hook was he said, this is performance art. Bannon... Right. I, I don't I don't know that I mean, Bannon must know sometimes he's being dishonest, but I, I, that's not the same thing as saying he doesn't believe in his cause and really, really mean it. I think he kind of does. And by the way, he's interesting because he is somebody who um, has said repeatedly he thinks there's going to be a revolution and he doesn't look like he would really especially mind that. You know, he yeah. he's. He's one of those guys, and and this whole election aftermath thing has given uh, him some traction. So he's kind of an interesting case study. I mean, I know we're getting away from what the literature does and doesn't say about civil war, but there there are a lot of new, weird, and troubling things going on, right? Yeah, I you, so yeah, you brought up the fans in professional wrestling. So I I do think I mean I know. I sort of come from a lower middle class background. So I have a lot of uh, friends and family who are, you know, just sort of normie Trump supporters, not the not the smart ones mm-hmm. who, who go off and, you know, the you know, so-called smart ones who go off and say, take him, you know, serious, uh, seriously, but not literally. Yeah. I know people who take him actually literally. Right? Hey, listen, I, I, listen, three of three of three of my four siblings voted for Trump. So I may win this. Con- <laughs> I may win this contest, but but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you may. Um, At least the first yeah, time so- around. I, I don't know what they did this time. Uh, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so I think the yeah I think the fans are, sort of believe it, but but you have to think of what, what what is what are the people sort of the intermediate level, you know, the talk radio host or the are you are you the news show host? And what what are the you know I, they believe it at some level. I believe that even Alex Jones and people who know him say he does believe in this stuff at some level. He's not just a complete uh, con artist making things up that he he doesn't have a stake in it emotionally. Uh, so the you know the question is are these are these people sort of so like the Fox News and the talk radio hosts and, you know, whatever the equivalents are on the left, are they actually at some point going to say it's over? Let's let's take to the streets. Or are they always going to say, well, tune in to next week. You know, we've got a pretty comfortable life and I'll get mad when the you know, because they, because you, you're sort of going to need leadership to say, you know, let, let's actually do this, make this something into something serious. Right. And if those people at the intermediate level and the elite level, you know, they don't want a civil war, of course, you know, so if at the intermediate level, then the, the system could be very stable, even if the fans are, you know, they're, they're, they're just being brought along and they're enjoying, you know, but, every yeah. Job. If, if if the elites mainly just want to tell the fans uh, where to send their tax-deductible contributions to keep the movement alive, that alone will not start a revolution. That's true. Yeah, and, and if that's sort of what they're geared for. I mean, that, like, I, like I brought up Glenn Beck, like I, I watch these same personalities over the years. And when they lose a battle, it's never like, OK, now we have to go fight. It's like they sort of just forget it. And then they go on and they, they talk about the next thing. So, you know, that's something that's very – there's something very stable about that. Yeah. Now – as for the basic model, like, you know, you kind of write as if there's these two schools in academia. One emphasizes the grievances. One emphasizes the opportunities for civil war. And you write as if one of them is right and one of them is wrong. I would have thought they obviously both have to be right to some extent. You can't imagine a civil war with no grievances on the on the one hand. But um, on the other hand, you can't imagine a civil war in which you know, conditions aren't in some sense conducive to the civil war, right? You, 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 you know, whether it's weak authority or various other things. So, I mean, is that, is there something wrong with the way I'm thinking about it? Or, or, you know, and I've noticed in the past that academics like to talk about alternative hypotheses that are not in fact alternatives. They do that a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, where, where it could be one, a little of one and a little of the other. But, but you, you, you seem, um, you seem to think, no, basically one of these is the grievance model is just wrong, right? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that our job as, as um, social scientists is not just to tell people sort of everything matters in a way, because that's, that's very easy to do. I think that what we try to do is, yeah, everything sort of, you know, matters at some level to some extent. But I think what we try to do when we do good social science is say, okay, like this sounds plausible and this sounds plausible, but this is more closer to, this is closer to the truth than this mm-hmm. is. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I would have just, I wouldn't say the opportunity model, you know, or, is, you know, completely right. And the grievance model is completely wrong. You know, I have, I, I linked to some papers in the Washington Post piece and you can look at the statistics and, you know, the statistics are generally, they find an effect for the opportunity variables and not for the grievance variables. The grievance variable, but it depends on sometimes how you measure it. Sometimes the grievance variables do have an effect. Um, but yeah, I would stand by the idea that the opportunity uh, model is closer to the world. I mean, we've had some sort of, 
natural experiences with this when, you know, you look at uh, Afghanistan under the Taliban or Iraq under Saddam Hussein, high, you know, high <laughs> grievance societies, you know, when, they, when you have the most brutal governments in the world. And then the U.S. comes and they say, we're going to give you democracy and human rights. And, and what do you know? They have civil wars that last that last for decades. So you do have these sort of kind of uh, kind of experiments where you just like do these extreme cases and then you get the civil war. And this is, you know, yeah, but those are these are pretty ham handed attempts to address the grievances. Right. I, I mean, it's, it's it's probably a misreading of the grievances to begin with. Right. I mean, to think that, well, they must all want to have a government just like America's. That's probably what's wrong. Well, yeah, uh, it's more complicated than that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's yeah, I think that's true. At the same time, you do look at things like, I mean, the. Um, you know, you will see you will see people say stuff like, you know, you can't defeat ISIS unless you uh, deal with Assad. So we're getting a little bit off track because the Middle East is another one of my uh, one of my hobby horses. But they'll still say that because they're what are they using? They're using the grievance model. The Sunnis are mad because Assad is there. And mm-hmm. as long as Assad's there, they're going to form ISIS. And you know what? That that model was proven wrong. Assad was still there. And ISIS was, you know, the, you never say completely defeated. They'll always say, you know, there's there's a pocket here or there. But no, it, it's the fact that there's a civil war going on and these Islamic extremists, they rise up and this is, you know, this is they, they fill that vacuum. Um, so, you know, the, the, I think that I just think when you look at a wide array of, you know, different phenomena, everything from where we see civil wars in the world um, to, uh, you know, what U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East looks like to, you know, the lack of violence in first world countries, not just the U.S., but, you know, even France, you know, a couple dozen people died. Like, that's huge. But that's, you know, on a world historical scale. That's not something that, um, you know, is anything close to a civil war. Uh, yeah, I would say the opportunity model, you know, explains a wider, you know, wider mm-hmm. array of things in the world. So one thing you've kind of suggested here uh, and say explicitly in in the Twitter thread that got my attention is that, you know, there are these uh, these policy implications of these two schools. The way you put it is that the grievance model, if you take that seriously, you're inclined to address the root causes of the grievances. Uh, and again, I, I, I don't think we did a particularly deft job of even trying that in, in uh, Afghanistan or Iraq, but leave that aside. But, but, um, and whereas, uh, if the problem is the, the conditions, it's, it's more a question of, uh, asserting authority, right? Making sure that, that, uh, law enforcement is strong enough not to permit, uh, the, the outbreak of civil war. So, I mean, l- let's, Let's look at that in the context of American politics. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of a root causes person in a lot of ways, uh, I guess. And like when I look at um, what grievance there is in America right now, uh, if, if I look at the grievances that I think are responsible for Trump getting elected, um, you know, they include things like the loss of working class jobs in middle America and, and, and the attribution of that, at least by the people in middle America, to immigration, to trade. Um, and then separate from that, maybe, uh, some, some sheer ethnic, uh, changes as a result of immigration and a sense of, of identity threat that might emerge from that and so on. So I might, I might think, um, you know, you look at those and look at w- which of these grievances can you address without, you know, without sacrificing any sacred values, at least. Uh, you know, can you, uh, could you, could you improve the situation economically and so on? Um, that, I mean, you're not against that, but you just don't think, I guess you just don't think it matters because it wasn't, 
the grievances that we're going to get you to civil war anyway. Is that right? Yeah, I think that, you know, I would not, if I was advising policymakers, I would not say that doing this or that policy is going to, you know, unless it was something crazy, like, you know, just defund law enforcement or something like that. You know, something about, you know, bringing jobs or having higher paying wage, um, as it might be good to do that for other reasons, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend doing that for to avoid a civil war. To avoid a civil war. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that's a realistic reason to to do those things. You, you touched on another thing, um, which actually I wrote another paper on recently about um, the sort of what's driving Trump is uh, Trump movement and the grievances there. Yeah, I would agree that it's economics. I think it's more of these uh, these cultural issues, and I think there's good data there. But but either way, you know, whatever is ultimately the root of the grievances. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's going to be civil war or even you know um, or even anything close to it. Yeah. Yeah. The um. The other thing that occurred to me, I mean, it must, what, what do you think about this issue of just the fact that, okay, it re- pretty much can't be a, like two halves of the country face off. I mean, well, let me ask you this. I mean, you do believe presumably that civil conflict could get worse. Do you think there's a really low limit on how bad it can get or, or, or what? I mean, is it worth worrying about? I mean, I mean, we do have a weird situation where, um, you know, we have had red-blue violence uh, within just a couple of days ago. We had uh, where red and blue collided at demonstrations. We had a few stabbings, a couple of shootings. I don't think any of it was fatal. Earlier in the year, in the context of the George Floyd demonstrations, again, groups of red and blue clashed. In, in some case, you know, shots were fired. People were killed. Uh, this is kind of... You know, th- this is not had not been a very common part of the American experience. And one thing you do have now is on one side of the Great Divide, you have a lot of weapons. You have like a lot of gun ownership, right? Um, do you do you not worry about uh, civil conflict at all? Leave aside it getting to the level of civil war. Uh, I mean, I you know, it's always, you know, one mass shooter could go and can kill dozens and dozens of people. That's that's always a possibility. And there's there's no law of political science or sort of political economy who says, you know, that couldn't happen. It certainly could. It, there was a shooting in El Paso that was motivated by a guy mm-hmm. who didn't like immigration. Uh, not that long. Was it El Paso? Yeah, the Walmart, right? Yeah, yeah. that was actually, as it happens, I was like a half a mile from my uh, where I went to elementary school uh, for a couple of years. But the uh, we used to live there. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there, so there was no Walmart there then, but anyway, yeah, right. So, so yeah, these things happen. I mean, they're always a concern. I mean, it's hard to sort of it's like terrorism, where it's like so rare, it's hard to predict events that like something that might happen one in you know once every three years and see you know what predicts that. But I would say that for uh, when there's when there's violence, when there's civil conflict, usually there's a political goal that that the 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 group uh, you know the, the group committing the violence wants. And the thing, if you think about it from like a game theory, theoretic perspective, right, these, uh, if you're, say, some right wing or left wing extremist, you know, you start killing politicians, you start killing judges, you do something like that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're done. I mean, and even if you go into like, you mean because the government will destroy you, we'll, we'll crush you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if everyone started doing it at once, I guess it could be, it could be a problem. Right. But if like, you know, you're one group and you're doing it, you're yeah. going to crush. And if you go to like extremist websites and you sort of look at what they're talking, you know, they even have terms for this like this guy's a fed like as soon as somebody talks about violence because they sort of understand this that if they you know start to if they uh if they even talk like this or you know actually you know commit something like that they can be destroyed I mean, dylan roof i mean did more to uh stigmatize the confederate flag and you know it was taken down
down because of him. He did the, you know, if you're a neo-Confederate, he was the worst person uh, in the world for your cause. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I assume that, you know, our law enforcement works and I assume that actors are somewhat rational and I can't account for every individual who might do something crazy. You know, that's always worth worrying about. Uh, but yeah, I, I does, it doesn't keep me up at night out, out of all the things in the world that we'll see more widespread violence. Yeah, it's interesting. With the Trump administration, we had the unusual situation where the anti, you know, there's long been a right wing kind of anti government, somewhat militant movement out there of some size, right? That it kind of first became prominent after the Oklahoma, or, you know, came into the view of many of us uh, after the Oklahoma City bombing. That's kind of been out there. With, with the Trump administration, you had a strange thing where for the first time, they were the, the the anti-government people were starting to identify with the administration that was the government, and and that 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 created a, a kind of fear on the left of of, of a particular uh, uh, kind of civil war that's probably unusual, which is an alliance between the government and the anti-government right, right? The, especially after after the George Floyd stuff, the fear was that Trump might. Um, you know, call in federal troops and so on. And then there would be a reaction against that from the left, from Antifa and blah, blah, blah. But that, uh, assuming Trump doesn't find a way to stay in the White House, is about to to change. And I guess might, well, you think the odds are so low uh, to civil war to begin with that maybe the question is not worth asking. But I would think that uh, getting back to the more common situation of a government that the anti-government right hates might actually reduce the chances of something cataclysmic happening, if that makes sense. Um, you're saying that the so you, you're, you're what I hear is your worry is that Trump administration sort of has this alliance between that. This was this was a worry that was out there that that uh, I, I mean, you could look at it either way. You could say, well, won't this pacify the anti-government right now? They have friends in the government. On the other hand. If the yeah. gov, you know, if Trump decides to use his executive authority to, uh, yeah, I, I guess if here was a kind of authoritarian crackdown on behalf of red state America or something, you know, I guess yeah. that, that might, uh, lead to something. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, with a person like Trump, I think it's more a theoretical <laughs> concern. I, I just don't think he has sort of the the attention span for it. Or, you know, he might have he might have the intention, you know, or we might like to do something like that. Um, could it potentially let's say you had somebody who sort of had the same instincts and, um, you know, sort of had the same coalition, but was sort of more of a focused leader. Yeah, I mean, that's something that could happen. I, I, you know, that's a sort of it's different from civil war because it's coming from top down yeah. and government. Right. So like after 9-11, the government could, you know, do all these things that weren't, you know, as extreme as what you're talking about. But, you know, like take away people's rights and do stuff like that. Um, yeah, that that I think is more probably of a uh, of a um, realistic concern than than some of the civil war uh, civil war discussion. Yeah. I mean, one thing I wonder about is like. You know, you mentioned information in one sense, information avail- availability, but there's there's another, you know, relevant thing about information, which is that, uh, you know, uh, different factions, including uh, antagonistic factions, can be kind of in their own information ecosystems, and that's I think it's that's always been true. It's used, it's just that that used to be geographically defined, right? I'm sure that in the run-up to the Civil War, very different narratives were prevailing in the South than in the North. 
And and in fact, when you said that, uh, you know, one um, predictor of civil wars was uh, mountain ranges, and your explanation of that was that they made it hard for the government to exert centralized authority, the existence of mountain ranges. I thought, well, yeah, but also they, they are sometimes correlated, A, with different ethnic, with ethnic fragmentation, and B, until, you know, fairly recently, they would have been associated with different information ecosystems because a lot of information kind of traveled on the ground. And, um, uh, you know, starts to change with radio, but it doesn't change completely uh, for a while. Um, but in any event, now it's like, there's almost no correlation. Well, there's some correlation, but there's there's no intrinsic correlation between geography and information ecosystem. You know, so you can have uh, you can have a, a, a distinct information ecosystem that is very finely, you know, kind of articulated across the country in more or less the same way that the rival ecosystem is, and and that just that has to have implications that I haven't totally figured out for actual civil war. I mean, maybe, I don't, I don't know. Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there there is a just a nationalization of, of politics. So, I mean, it doesn't even have to think about civil war. You can just look at uh, uh, voting patterns, you know, where pe- what people talk about or what people are interested in. Um, there used to be, you know, like the Democrats, the a Democrat from the North used to be, you know, very different from a Democrat in the South. You know, the Democrat right. South could be a, you know, a segregationist, a North Democrat could be a, you know, a, a civil rights champion. You, you don't really see that anymore. And you do sort of see this kind of, uh, homogenization of sort of opinions in these in these two camps yeah i would i mean i would yeah i I am a little bit of a sort of technological you know determinist on this thing i do think it's sort of the um yeah i don't know if it's technological determinist. i think there has been a there's been a business model of sort of what sells that has sort of worked and it's served sort of people in the media and it's served the parties well at times uh to sort of tap into that um you know the uh, whether that makes it more or less likely it sort of makes that you know it sort of makes every i guess it's sort of just yeah i mean if i was going to guess i mean like i said i think the uh odds of civil war are low anyway but you know, the I, I would guess that it would have less of a because you, you think about it when it's geographically based, like a leader in sort of, uh, you know, has a sort of incentive to sort of rile people up to dislike these people in this other part of the world. Now, if they have like, uh, you know, if they're if they're sort of divided within. Right. If you're Texas and you Trump won you 55 to 45, if Texas was 90, 10. Right. Uh, maybe the governor right. of Texas would have an incentive to say, you know, I'm going to be the king of this place instead of instead of a governor of a state. When he's 55, 45, at the next election, a Democrat, Democrats might, you know, take majority. Or if you know, if he cancels the election, you know, Democrats' public opinion might shift in their direction. It maybe makes less sense. So, yeah, it makes sense to me that maybe you would have sort of a less of a risk just because it changes sort of elites instead of you want a big market, you want a giant country where they're all listening to the exact same thing. If you're sort of the talk radio host, right? You want the giant country that they're all listening to the same thing, and you have a big market. Just basically, you're getting them angry about you know whatever the outrage yeah. of the day is. I mean, and speaking of that, I mean, in a way, some of this is older than I'm giving it credit for. I mean, you know, Father Coughlin, uh, before World War II, you know, this conservative, uh, Catholic, I guess, kind of in the, in the Pat Buchanan tradition, who, um, before there was Pat Buchanan, uh, who was arguing against entry into World War II or, and so on, 
you know, uh, he had a nation, I think it, it was broadcast nationwide, but of course it wasn't like that everyone tuned in. I mean, I mean, his audience was sprinkled, yeah. uh, across, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, every state. Uh, and yeah. apparently, you know, by the way, he had a bit, he had a following of like 30 million. He had a listenership of like 30 million. I heard the other day, which would have been a big chunk of the population. In yeah, the but you know how, but, how, do you know how he declined? Do you know how he, how he lost his influence? No. How did it happen? Uh, FDR basically leaned on the government to take away his, uh, the broadcast license. I'm oh, not did sure they? The, yeah. I'm not sure of the details, whether I think they, they sort of informally leaned on, uh, whoever the sort of was carrying the, uh, the show. Um, and they, they got it basically taken off air through government pressure. Um, and so that, that's an interesting lesson too. Sort of you could do these things maybe a little bit more easily. Maybe the culture and maybe the concentrated the nature of technology. You know, if there was just one Rush Limbaugh, you know, maybe you can you shut them down if you have a sort of whole network of, you know, all these uh, websites and uh, TV channels and radio hosts. It just becomes a lot more difficult. Well, yeah, but you do have some pretty centralized levers of control. I mean, YouTube—they're not explicitly in government hands, but they're in elite hands. And and as it happens, they're in blue state elite hands. Well, uh, YouTube, what's that? I think those actually, think those actually they did do something like that. So uh, like uh, sort of white nationalists and neo-Nazis were much more prominent on the Internet uh, uh-huh. in 2015, 2016. So there was something like that where, you know, was they, they just started taking, you know, kicking them off Twitter, not letting them make YouTube videos. And now you have this new thing like, you know, now you have like QAnon and like whatever, whatever's out there in the election fraud stuff, um, which is hard to sort of. Uh, stamp out because I think, you know, they're it's seen as sort of so mainstream, like within the Republican Party. Uh, but I guess you do see that. You do see sort of elites sort of stamping down. Well, I, I think within the last few days, YouTube, you know, on this safe harbor date, which I think was December 8th, uh, YouTube said, well, now that safe harbor is here and the election's basically over, uh, we're going to start uh, not permitting the uploading of certain kinds of, of videos asserting that there has been widespread fraud, fraud or something. That's a pretty extreme measure. Um, and it, but, but it would have real power. Now it does, it does risk, uh, the creation of alternatives or, or the, the patronizing of alternatives. And there is, I think, a right wing alternative to YouTube now. I don't know how it's doing called Rumble or something. Um, but, but anyway, this is, you know, I, I, I think the, well, a lot of people have been surprised by the extent to which even in the Internet era, there have turned out to be these centralized kind of spigots uh, of control. I don't think they're being exercised all that coherently. But the fact is, between Facebook and, and YouTube and Twitter, you got a ton of power in, in principle. Um, so yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I worry about that stuff. I mean, I worry about sort of double standards and sort of. Um, you know, I, I didn't think there was much to the Hunter Biden story. I didn't really like the media sort of, you know, the social media sort of uh, shutting it down. I see yeah. I, a lot of the people I pay attention to who are sort of opposed to American foreign policy, you know, claim, make claims of censorship. I don't know if that's true, but it's plausible that Silicon Valley and sort of the national security establishment would have some kind of alliance. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it can tamp things down uh, by sort of taking this role. But at the same time, I, I worry about, you know, what direction you go in. Now, if you don't think, if you're like me and you don't think civil war is that uh, likely either way, you might err more on the side of free speech, right? You might say, well, it's not going to cause us to kill each other. The danger of actually shutting down alternative opinions is bad. So maybe, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, well, even if you do worry about civil conflict, it worries me that you, t- you know, there's an alternative Twitter too called, uh, what's it called? It also starts with an R, right? 
parlor, but it, but it's, oh, parlor, it's parlor. Yeah. yeah, I tried to go on there just to see sort of what it was like. And you go in, and the first thing it says, here's some suggested follows. And every single person is like a Fox News personality. Like you're not going to attract anyone to this thing that's not already, you know. So it, it's, it, I think it's a um, well, that yeah, yeah. It's not going to. I mean, it, it can. Um, the thing about Twitter and YouTube, the way why they get so much, um, why they you know dominate markets because they're good user friendly products, right? And it's not that easy to just. And they have the network effects, right? They have these. Uh, right. You can you can talk to LeBron LeBron James in the New York Times, and it's a strange kind of conservative who just wants to talk to Fox News hosts and other conservatives. I mean, there are probably a lot of them, uh, but it does limit their appeal and limit their influence. Well, especially since for you know people on both sides, you know these these uh, kind of high powered social media types on both red and blue. A big part of their action comes from trolling, basically. I mean, I mean, that, that's what builds them their own, the following from within their own tribe, uh, grows partly out of their trolling the other yeah, yeah. tribe successfully. Yeah, dunking so. on outrages on the other side is a huge part of the, the fun and joy that people get out of something like Twitter. So yeah, you need the yeah. intellectual diversity for that. I guess one, one question I'm kind of asking is like, what would, whether you want to call it, civil conflict or social dissolution or something. I mean, what would ever deepening and more alarming fragmentation along political lines even look like in the, in the current information environment? You know, it, it's, it's, it's something of very recent origin. There can't be much data. I mean, I just don't think anything before the year 2000 is very relevant or even before social media, which is more like 10, 12 years ago. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just, I'm just having trouble envisioning it. Uh, I'd like to think that, that maybe I can't envision it because nothing very horrible could happen, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I think you're right. I think the more technology changes, the sort of the less the past is, you know, is a, is a reliable guide. And I think you're right. We are, you know, in something new, but the question is technology can go in both directions. It could be a destabilizing um, uh, factor or it could actually be a stabilizing. So when you take the opportunity model, for example, of civil war, you might think, look, the fact that the police get to use this stuff too, and they get to spy on people and the feds get to spy people probably is going to outweigh any kind of, you know, um, increase in grievance that you get by people talking to each other. So, so you, your models can help you sort of think and things can go in the other direction. And you could imagine it, you know, forget about civil war, but just like, you know, the functioning of our institutions, you can sort of imagine it just being a, uh, you know, a stabilizing thing where you have these partisan battles. Sometimes somebody wins, sometimes somebody doesn't. It's hard to like cooperate on the big stuff. Be like if COVID-19 comes along, half the country will just do the opposite of what the other half is doing. And, you know, that's that's not good. Uh, so <laughs> we'll be bad at dealing with no novel problems. Um, but yeah, the system. I mean, it could be a it could be a stabilizing force. I guess is what I would say. And and when I look at American politics in the last 20, 20 years, it seems like a lot is happening. But I, I don't think a lot is happening. <laughs> I think I think that if you look at you know like uh, you know for example uh, foreign policy, which I'm you know very interested in, you're like, oh, Trump came along and there was this you know brand new thing, and he threw out the neocons. And, you know, 90% of the policy is the same. It's, yep. you know, they're sanctuating Venezuela. He's bringing on John Bolton. He's bringing on, you know, Mike Pompeo, the most established people. It's the same thing with the economic stuff. You know, there's a, uh, you know, people have written about basically the, a lot of talk about his populist realignment while Trump just basically did mostly uh, um, uh, old school Republican, you know, tax cuts and deregulations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, it's bread and circuses. It's, it's, uh, it can be seen as sort of a, just a way of stabilizing the system and making sure, you know, nothing much changes yeah so what uh so so 
Is it that you just don't worry about civil war or you don't worry about the direction of American politics much generally? Oh, I mean, no, no. I, I worry about them. <laughs> I, worry, I worry about American politics. I think that what are, what are your uh, big worries? Uh, just that the partisanship is just making us stupid and unable to deal with problems. Just the, you know, the fact that, you know, we'll go back to COVID-19, the fact that, um, you know, that, that Trump can say things like that, you know, that one side can basically say, um, you know, masks don't work. You know, we don't need testing. I mean, the fact that we didn't do any mass testing and even the stuff on the left, like the identity politics were, you know, um, the Black Lives Matter protests and then how, like, you know, they, they all of a sudden all these public health experts were saying that it wasn't, you know, a big deal. So I'm I, I worried, you know, I, I think that there's an identity politics on the left that's not very good. I think there's a symbiotic a relationship with what's happening on the right, which is sort of this unfocused um, sort of uh, amorphous backlash that could be channeled into like the Tea Party, could be channeled into Iraq War, it could be channeled into uh, Trumpism. Um, so yeah, I, I'm worried about our ability to deal with novel challenges. Now, as far as like, you know, like um, civil war or like the really tail end stuff of like mass violence, I don't think that'll happen either. Um, so I don't know where that puts me on sort of the optimism, pessimism spectrum. You know, I think that, you know, like things like people's satisfaction with the economy before COVID was actually good. You know, there's some of the system, we have institutions that sort of, sort of work. It's just when we need to focus on something, when there's a serious problem, I think that's when it goes haywire. You know, there's a, a lot of good political science work that, uh, on, um, uh, like the stuff that is hard to do is the stuff that's salient. So there's a lot of actually laws that get passed. But and they have bipartisan mm. support, but mm. nobody's paying attention to them. Uh, and so I forget I forget the name of this author, but she wrote about this. She wrote all these examples just from the last few years. But then if it becomes an issue like you know healthcare or COVID, it becomes like the one or two most important things. Then the things get dysfunctional. Uh, so I'm sort of I guess I would say a most pessimistic about sort of our mental health. <laughs> I think I think this I think this sort of partisanship or tribalism is bad for us. Just you know the worrying about civil war, just like the sort of hatred on the other side. I think it's a bad thing. I think um, you know that the, the, to the extent that that sort of takes over normal people's lives more and more and becomes like a more tied in with their identity. I think that's a bad thing. Um, but as far as, like I said, violence or, you know, uh, just the inability of government to function at all. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. Yeah. I mean, just a quick thought on the salience. I wonder about the direction of causality. I mean, some of that presumably is just that when there is contestation over an issue, it makes the headlines. It becomes salient. I mean, the things, yeah. you know, it's, it's not news if everyone agrees, if the Democrats or Republicans agree. So it's almost, it's almost, right. it has low news salience as yeah. a result yeah. of that. But, but you're suggesting there's something else going on, which is that if something's prominent, it just tends to, to generate a dysfunctional response by the government or an inability to, uh, to reach consensus. Yeah, I mean, the public and even, you know, the news reading, the most, uh, you know, educated, most uh, informed members of the public, there's only so much bandwidth, right? There's only yeah. like two or three issues we're really discussing at once. Um, so even if people disagree on the other stuff, um, you know, either elites agree or they are, uh, you know, they're finding ways to compromise and work together and nobody feels, you know, there's an issue that nobody sees an advantage in demagoguing relative to all the other stuff that they can do in the world. So that stuff 
gets done and that stuff functions. Mm-hmm. It might not always be great. I think a lot of foreign policy like Afghanistan war just continues for us sort of forever in this way um, where nobody's paying attention and like the, you know, the sort of elites agree. Uh, so this can, this can be dysfunctional, but it's, it's basically, it's governing, right? It's, it's government and it's, it's working. And uh, yeah, the, you know, we just become very, very stupid when the, when sort of, <laughs> you know, when the lizard brain and the partisanship and the, you know, all the shouting comes and the, all that stuff is just activating. We go, we go to a bad place, but it's also good to know that that's not everything and stuff is happening all the time. That's sort mm-hmm. of the surface. Yeah. I mean, I would think, uh, you know, you seem to acknowledge that to some extent, uh, our, our system of governance has become a little less functional. If I read you right, that that's a byproduct of, of some of the tribalism. I would think mm-hmm. if that went far enough, you would be getting into an area where conditions actually were conducive to civil war. I mean, if the government isn't coherently effective, uh, I mean, ultimately, that's got to wind up affecting its authority, I guess, I guess is what I what I mean. All right. Yeah, I mean, it could. But then, you know, if the, you know, if the FBI and the police and the, you know, the sort of intelligence is all is, is all working. And these are sort of, you know, these, these uh, institutions that are sort of a little bit uh, at arm's length from the political system, as long as that stuff's working. I don't see why, you know, it has to end with blood in the streets. It just ends with like government shutdowns and a lot of yelling and a lot of people hate each other. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, this is all, in a certain sense, reassuring. I guess. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm here for. The uh, I want to before we go, I want to quickly talk about uh, something else you wrote about, which is um, China. Your your background, although we've been talking about civil wars, your background is more in international relations. And I think you wrote something. Uh, were you questioning the whole kind of great powers competition paradigm that's been that's gotten very popular lately. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the U.S. and and China as as uh, you know uh, facing some kind of inevitable uh, power uh, competition between great powers or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I I wrote a report skeptical of you know just the idea of great power competition as sort of a guide to American foreign policy. And then actually within the last um, just today, I published something on a Palladium uh, mag- magazine uh, specifically on China and sort of the U.S. response to China. Uh, yeah, I mean, so this idea of the great power, it's sort of, it's, you know, the people say, well, you know, China is a great power competitor. They sometimes say that about Russia. And the idea is that, you know, states are naturally antagonistic. There's, you know, if they're, if they're strong countries, um, if they're, you know, potential hegemons, they're going to be either locked in something like a zero-sum struggle. And people rely on, you know, sort of a historical perspective for that. Um, now, the reason that this this made sense, I think, you know, before, say, the second half of the 20th century or maybe earlier in uh, history is that countries fought a lot of wars against each other, like great powers, they, they uh, often kill. So if you didn't like colonize some territory or if you didn't, if you somebody got ahead of you um, economically, uh, you know, that could come back to bite you if there's ever a, a conflict. Right. So it makes sense. So sort of you're in this you're in the security dilemma. Everything that another country does to get stronger, it's seen as zero sum. Uh, we're we're not in a we're in a place where you know a lot of IR scholars would say great power war is impossible because of nuclear weapons um, or close to impossible. It just it just doesn't make sense. It would be so destructive. The U.S. part in particular, just how far it is from China and Russia, and the fact that we have no history of um, territorial you know uh, disputes. Now we have these disputes over Hong Kong and Taiwan, but that's generally the U.S. being in the backyards of these countries, um, which. We don't need to be and doesn't have actually, you know, a, a, it's not actually directly related to American security, American security. 
So my argument is that this is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is not a useful way to understand the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, the thing about China is, um, so I go into my uh, my piece on China. I go into the fact that if you just look at data, um, it's uh, it's it's going to be the most powerful country in East Asia. There's really nothing we can do to to um, overturn that. You know, these these people come along and they say we need to decouple this and that. It doesn't matter. They're they're already they're matching us in GDP in a. Uh, purchasing power parity, they'll pass us by the other one. And they're still growing because they're a middle income country and middle income countries just grow faster than higher income countries. And plus they're right there. So they're going to, you know, even US allies like Japan, Australia, South Korea, they have much deeper economic ties to China than they do the US, even if they're formally aligned with the US and stuff like Huawei and um, Hong Kong, like South Korea, for example, takes China's side on every one of these things. So there's sort of, there's this inevitable sort of decline that we're going to have to live with in this area. And, you know, and if you sort of remove the paradigm of great power competition as the way to understand this relationship, it doesn't have to be that scary of a thing. It's just something we can sort of live with and adjust to. Because uh, once you take away supposedly momentous great power competition, there just aren't all that many actual threats to things that the U.S. actually has reason to care about. Yeah, and the way that great power competition is used, I mean, it's very disturbing when I see the the way, like, uh, there was this one um, uh, American general who was testifying before Congress, and he was talking, I think he was, like, head of Africa Command, and he was talking about what they were doing in Africa, and he's like, we need to be there because, like, China and Russia are going to fill the vacuum. And it's like, fill the yeah. vacuum and do what? Build, ro- build roads. Imagine <laughs> if somebody other than us was building roads in Africa. Yeah, it, it, it's just strange. And it's like, you know, I try to take the idea seriously, but the way it's used in practice is often just a way to sort of justify anything. You need to be in Syria. Russia is going to fill that vacuum. I even heard someone say uh, you need to be in Afghanistan. China, China, by the way, is like Afghanistan's uh, has more investment in Afghanistan than anyone else. So U.S. being there is not stopping it from becoming closer to China. So it doesn't even make sense on its own terms. It's not like we're stopping them from trading with China by occupying that country and fighting a war there. So, you know, I, I think that this uh, this entire paradigm is sort of it's it's faulty and it just leads to some really bad policy. There seems to be a lot of momentum behind it, though, behind the the, the, the paradigm. I mean, you see this, uh, where, uh, you know, again, to get back to Steve Bannon, I mean, they they are going all in on the narrative that, you know, Joe Biden uh, is in cahoots with China to suppress the deplorables. And, uh, and that's just going to put, if they succeed with that narrative, that's just going to put political pressure on him that makes it harder uh, for him to, to, you know, do engagement with China. Um, it's, uh, so I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, do you see anything else? Why is it? I mean, there, there seems to be just this kind of Monarchian tendency. It's like for a long time we had the Cold War. Okay. We had this global struggle with evil. And, you know, you, you could, you could argue that there was definitely, it wasn't totally in our heads, although we obviously overreacted and fought a lot of like little battles that in retrospect weren't, weren't pivotal. Um, but uh but that went away and now lo and behold uh we you know china is is fulfilling that psychological role the role that that global communism did fill and to some extent russia is too to some extent it's this it's the same thing i mean do you have a theory about why since you don't view it as an accurate view of the situation uh, as to why it is so popular 
Yeah, I mean, I have, I take a public choice perspective. So the, the Cold War, you know, ended. And when you have a big government, you know, any kind of government agency or government bureaucracy, it usually doesn't just go away. It doesn't usually say, you know, we solved the problem. Now we've got to do something else. So, uh-huh. um, you know, I noticed after the Cold War in the 1990s, the sort of the ideas, uh, you know, the, the new justifications. So it became responsibility to protect. You know, there were always atrocities committed by governments across the world, but there wasn't a great power competitor. So we said, you know, the, the U.S. needs to go and engage in humanitarian interventions. Maybe that worked in some cases. In other cases, it obviously uh, didn't. And then there was, you know, rogue states. And then you had 9-11. And, you know, it, it, you could have easily said the lesson of that is don't be in the Middle East. Like that's what that's what motivated bin Laden. And that's the reason. But no, it became we have to sort of we have to go in there. We have to democratize the Middle East. It's crazy. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, that as terrorism, you know, sort of fades, uh, China becomes sort of the issue for these people. I'll, you know, I have a I have a Twitter thread on the neocons, and people talk about the neocons where you know they wanted to get us into Iraq. And I actually went back and did some uh, review of their earliest documents when they mm-hmm. were uh, they started the project for a new American century, and they were yep. writing in the Weekly Standard ninety seven ninety eight. They weren't talking about Iraq at all. They were just you know they wanted to um, they wanted to you know spend money. They were talking about China. They were talking, I think maybe maybe even about Russia. Maybe Saddam Hussein. They'd mention him not mm-hmm. now and then. They become friends with Chalabi. Then they become well. Anyways, so you, there's a book by William Hartung called um, Prophets of War. Uh-huh. Um, PH, Prophets of War, right? Play on words, uh, where he talk, goes into the founding of it. And it was actually founded by a Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Martin executive, was one of the founders of the Project of a New America. Is that so, right? Yeah, I think his name is Bruce Jackson. I'm not sure, but I think that's his name. But it's, it's in Will Hart. I program. mean, the, the, the prominent faces were like Bill Crystal and Bob Kagan, hey, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. But there was this guy who was uh, who who was sort of in the revolving door of being in the defense industry and also being in uh, uh, being in government had served had lobbied on behalf of uh, NATO expansion in the 1990s. And he was one of the co-founders of, of, of PNAC. And we don't know, like, this is not a group that makes all its donors um you know, public. So we don't know like what percentage of it just came from the weapons yeah. industry. Uh, but, you know, they, and, you know, I think people were involved who are true believers. I think at every step of the way, they find alliances with people who are true believers, but there's a lot of money and a lot of interest to sort of keep things going the way they are. Uh, Bannon, like we talked about Bannon, there's a Chinese billionaire who's, you know, uh-huh. you know Miles, Miles Guo. Yeah. So it's hard to, it's hard to differentiate, you know, like, um, He's, he's, we should say he he faces he's in the U.S. faces extradition. He's been indicted in China, yeah. and and so uh, yeah, he he um, but he he bankrolls Bannon, yeah. Yeah, so so my perspective would be it's something you know it, 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 I, I would take an American sort of domestic politics view of this. I think there's a lot of lobbying, and I think there's a lot of people mentally invested in American leadership, and I think there's sort of a lot of a. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of money's to be made, a lot of, you know, jo- jobs to be had, a lot of yeah. prestige to be had from doing something, you know, important in the world. And, you know, that's, that's, that that would be my sort of grand explanation of American foreign policy. Yeah, it does seem like there's always something I'd forgotten about rogue states. I mean, I hadn't forgotten about them, but for a while, right after the Cold War, that was the closest thing to the new menace. It was going to be rogue states. Yeah. And then after 9-11, it was going to be terrorism, and now it's China. Um, we're pivoting from the Middle East <laughs> to China. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to say about um, 
about Civil War, you have, I, I, I hope you've reassured everyone that we don't have to worry about this, even though there are plenty of things to worry about in America. Uh, actual flat-out Civil War, you think, is not one of them. Yeah, I would just reiterate. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be shocked if we had a civil war. <laughs> you could, you could, if you know, the, the, if we have a civil war, the the least of people's concerns is you know my sort of reputation. But I, you know, but <laughs> I'll just say that I, I, I I'll emphasize that again. And 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 you're not, you don't think uh, secession, a serious secessionist movement, is likely either. No, no, for the reasons we talked about. I mean, just yeah, yeah. Sort of no, there, there, there would be that would just lead to an insurrection within the state. Um, so yeah, and, you know, and I'll be surprised when they, you know, like for Medicaid. Remember, uh, uh, remember Medicare expansion under Obamacare. There was the state. So this was the most salient issue in the country. Me- Medicaid, Medicaid, right? Yeah, yeah, or- Medicaid. Yeah. yeah, the poor people one, not the not right. the old people one. So they were right. trying to they were trying to expand that into Obamacare, and then states held out for a while and said we're not going to take that funding, and then just like every year, a few more end up taking the funding, and it shows you like you know Obamacare is the biggest issue, but still there's a you know the the central government could print its own money, and there's there's serious financial costs to going against it. So if they can't even stop themselves from uh uh you know not taking money from Obamacare, which is you know the great Satan and sort of conservative cosmology. Uh, I don't think they're going to, you know, uh, be cut off from federal spending and maybe have sanctions placed on them or whatever. Yeah, I don't don't see that happening. Okay, well, I will sleep easier tonight, having been reassured by you that I won't wake up tomorrow to... Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I mean, I mean it, sometimes optimism, you know, doesn't doesn't sell. You know, the, there's a, a Peter Turchin. I mean, he's he's everywhere, and you know, people find it fascinating the idea that you can scientifically predict that there's going to be a civil war. People he's, now he is he 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 is a, is he a political scientist? Is T U R C H I N? Yeah, he's a um, he's a political. I think he's an eco- he started as an ecologist, and I think he's a professor of ecology. So he made his name in ecology, but he writes about um, he writes about um, uh, uh, sort of cyclical. Uh, he has a cyclical theory of violence and yeah, he's, he's one that, um, you know, he's a scholar that I, I disagreed with that I, 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 by name took issue with. Um, yeah, you took and, issue in, in that very tr- Twitter thread I mentioned that mentioned me, the, the, um, yeah, well, I, I'm very, I don't know about his particular cy- cyclical theory. I'm deeply skeptical of cyclical theories in general in history. They just don't, you know, no, Bannon is totally enamored of this fourth turning thing and we're in the yeah. middle of the fourth turning, he says, but, but. Uh, yeah. So go ahead. Anyway, go ahead and fit. So Turchin is, in your view, an alarmist. You would say. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I would say so. I mean, even the, um, you know, and it's weird because the Civil War literature, the people who study Civil War, I, I, you know, I, I've been, I've been sort of steeped in this literature for years, and Turchin's name sort of doesn't come up. Now he gets cited a lot, but it's not within sort of the big end studies of people looking at civil war, you know, the, uh-huh. the big data of the last 60 or 70 years. Um, uh, yeah, I think he's an alarmist. He, he, but if you look at his model, if you want a, an example of what a grievance based model looks like um, it's, it's his and, you know, people can you know reach out to me if they want to see a Twitter thread of how, you know, the people are saying he predicted 2020 and I have a Twitter thread showing. Not really. He made some vague thing about meaning you know, the election outcome or or what? No, no. He predicted that there would be greater instability in 2020. Now he didn't say in 2010 what instability would mean, right? He didn't say like number of deaths or whatever. Yeah. And then he has a thing where showing protests went up in 2020. Well, you know, and I in my thread I showed, yeah, just counting number of protests. You look at deaths and protests. You look at other measures of violence like crime. 
right? You yeah. don't see anything in 2020. So you, you sort of picked, he picked the variable he was going to, he said something bad's going to happen in the next decade. And then in 2020, he picked one variable that sort of seemed like that made that case. But there's all these other variables that I point to that don't show, you know, greater instability, you know, whatever that means. Uh, okay. or violence. It's, it's also, it's also, uh, yeah, sometimes it's instability and sometimes he says violence, the, the two are related. Yeah. So, um, but 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 it, it's I mean it's people are enamored by this. So here we had a profile in the Atlantic by uh, by Graham Wood um, a couple of weeks ah, ago. Ah, Graham Wood of of uh, ISIS fame. Not not that he was in ISIS, but he, he made his <laughs> no, you know no, he no. made his name with that big Atlantic right, piece right. where the yeah, killer yeah. line. This was the most read piece ever, and the killer you know the line that sent them to social media to share this piece was the one that said ISIS is very Islamic. That was the I don't know if yeah. you remember, but but kind of like in the lead into the piece, that was kind of his thesis, and there were a lot of people who wanted to think that way. Um, anyway, uh, so I, I didn't I didn't know that. I'll check out the Turchin thing, and 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 maybe sometime in the future, if I want to see my worst fears confirmed, I'll talk to him. He sounds yeah. well, sounds like he'd be good at that. Yeah, I heard I heard he actually doesn't like doesn't like podcasts, so you know maybe you can try, but I, I don't know. I don't know okay, well. In that case, I'll have to turn to some find another <laughs> source of yeah. another source of alarm. I'm sure they're out. I'm I don't I actually don't need one. I'm good at that myself. So uh, anyway, right. thanks, Richard. So where can people find you? Your Twitter handle is basically your name. Is that right, Richard H A N A N I A? Yeah, that's yeah. My Twitter feed is probably the best place to just stay updated. I have a Substack which you can find through Twitter. Um, if you want to um, follow with my organization, uh, it's the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. So if you, it's cspicenter.org. So, you know, check us out. We'll be having uh, reports coming out in the next few weeks. So, uh, and, yeah. And what's the name of your Substack newsletter? Uh, it's just it's just my name. It's just your name. It's in the Twitter profile. So if you go to Twitter, you'll see it there. Okay, great. Well, thanks for taking the time. No, my pleasure. This was fun. Same here. See you.